Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're looking at 2004's U.S. Open, where Roger picked up his fourth Grand Slam title in about as convincing a fashion as one can get. Before we go back, and hang out in 2004 for a while, Brian. Uh, I've been jotting some notes down as we go through this. Things you mentioned in past episodes and stuff that just sort of bubbles to the surface of my mind as I'm prepping for this. You've mentioned Davis Cup sort of casually in episodes past, and I thought it might be kind of cool if you could break down Davis Cup a little. What is it, and why is it important? So, Vic, it's actually interesting because it's changed a lot in the last year or two. The whole format's changed. But essentially, and here for the purposes of our podcast, it's 2004, it's a team competition. Each country plays, and how you do the year before dictates how you're going, which tier you're going to be in the next year. So the world group is the big one, and they'll play... You'll play a quali- like a quarterfinal, a semifinal, and then if you win, a final over the course of the year. But they're really spread out just because of how congested the tennis calendar is. How it works is you've got uh, two singles matches and then a doubles match and then the reverse singles, uh, wh- whichever team, country, uh, best of five. So whoever wins the three first uh, wins that mat, wins the tie, it's called, and moves on. Now, it's very historic. The U.S. has won it more than any other country. U.S. has not won it in a while as we sit here in 2020. You've got to go back to 2007 for the last time the U.S. has won it. Um, Australia, France, traditional powerhouses. It's a big deal for these guys when they win the Davis Cup. It's a huge feather in the cap. It was a big deal when Roger Federer finally got that Davis Cup title with Stan Wawrinka in Switzerland a couple of years ago. It was a huge deal when Andy Murray did it. It was a big galvanizing thing and Novak Djokovic climbing to the level where he's climbed. He's played some big competitive Davis Cup matches uh, when he was still on the ascendancy and that's really made a big difference. It has a big atmosphere too. If you watch traditional Davis Cup, um, it's a big time home court advantage. It's like watching almost a European soccer game. Fans are loud, not during points, obviously it's respectful, but after points, there's that charged energy about it. You're part of a team and that's different. Now it's, it's changed a bit where they are now trying to make it a little more friendly to TV, a little more modern in the format. So what they're doing is um, I actually broadcast one of the, the last sporting events before everything got put on hold by the pandemic. It was the U S Uh, playing a Davis Cup qualifier in Honolulu. And to win that, what you do now, they put everybody into Madrid over the same two or one week period at the end of the year in November, and they play it out from there. So it's one site. You're in like a round robin group and the best player, the best teams that fare well in, in the best groups or in each group, they'll advance to the knockout rounds, but they do it all in one central place. It's to conclude the tournament. So it makes some sense from a TV perspective to do it that way. But that is the Davis Cup in a, I don't know if nutshell is the right word, but that's a brief explanation of the Davis Cup. Where are matches played? Does it vary? Yeah, it varies. Um, and it's based on one country will host or the other country. Okay. Um, so if, you know, and then it's up to the country, wherever they want to play it. Now there is, 
a tactical thought that goes into that mind. You know, the U.S., when they won it in 2007, you had Andy Roddick, uh, Marty Fish, James Blake, the Bryan brothers. They were the big guns on that team. Those are big hitting, big serving guys. So the U.S. won that in the Rose Garden in Portland, uh, where the Trailblazers play basketball. So you want to play on an in, we talk about court conditions, you want to play for the U.S. at that time on an indoor fast court. You want fast, you want to, you know, highlight what Andy Roddick can do best, the big serves. You want to maximize your abilities. Meanwhile, if you're Spain, you want to play on clay. You want to get somebody, especially if you're playing a country who's not as comfortable on clay, or any European country usually is going to opt for clay for their surface, um, and so it's the country's choice. The last thing about Davis Cup, what are the stakes? Like, are there any financial stakes? Are there any ranking implications? No, it's um, it's pride and you get the big trophy. It's a huge deal in the career of everybody who's done it. Um, so it's more about national pride representing the country uh, than any terms of financial or points. It's like the Olympics for tennis. Is that fair? Uh, that is fair, yeah. And it's another way it's changing now. The ATP introduced the ATP Cup, which is a team competition um, in Australia. This was the first year of it in 2021. It's another competition. They've got the Labor Cup now. Um, let me just backtrack one second, because there is a payout, but I don't know if it goes to the players. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, this is, sounds really cynical of me. but Right, they're not doing it for um, free. Yeah, somebody's yeah. making money. Like, who's is the country benefiting? Is there a is there a governing body that's collecting the resources? Obviously, they have television partners and they have a court sponsors. Like, what is the besides pride? What is the sort of the business of it look like? Well, there's no points on the line, but there's a lot of money on the line. And now, with all these, the way they've reshaped the Davis Cup, they've boosted the prize pot. So the players get money. The winning players and the participating players, they do get money at the high levels. Um, and then it goes to the federations as well. Um, and that's a, another way because it's the ITF runs the Davis Cup. Something we've talked about unique to tennis, and it's good in some ways. It's also challenging in many ways. There are so many different stakeholders in tennis. The ATP, the WTA, the two tours, each of the four Grand Slams. And you've got the ITF. That runs the Davis Cup. That's essentially the governing body of international tennis. So the ITF has a hand here and they're going to sell the TV broadcast rights so the, that money goes of course to the ITF and then also distributed to the, the member countries. They call it their marketing. It's the World Cup of Tennis. That's uh, one way to think about it. Okay. Got it. Let's set the stage to uh, or blaze the trail if you will to the 2004 US Open. After Wimbledon, which we covered last time, Roger won immediately at Gestad. His home tournament in Switzerland. He beat a guy named Igor Andreev in the final. And if I say any of these names, by the way, and if anything jumps out, as always, please stop me. Igor Andreev. Andreev. Thank yes. you. And let, semantics, I wouldn't call this his home. It's his home tournament because it's in Switzerland, but his real home tournament, the one that really is big to him is Basel, the Swiss indoors, which is played in the fall. That's what we talked about. I don't remember if it was... Uh, Last time or two shows ago, we talked about, you know, he was a ball kid there when he was growing up. And that's the one to him that's absolutely huge. But Gestad at the time was really big to him. It's a clay tournament, so he doesn't really play it anymore, um, especially because of the timing. It's when everybody's gearing up for hard courts. Some guys can still go on to clay. But at the time, early in his career, he was getting, I think we talked about this last time, getting right off the grass court at Wimbledon where he had won the title. He played on grass for two months, nothing but. Then he steps on the court in Gestad two days later 
and he wins the tournament. That's very impressive, but this was a historically impressive year for Federer. And we're going to debate whether it's his best year. Once we, I think once we get to 2006, 2008, we can start to talk about that. Andreev was ranked 62 at the time, and he reached a career high ranking of 18. Uh, so no scrub by any measure. In July, he won the Canada Masters, Roger that is, beating Andy Roddick again, who was still ranked two. That tournament featured some stronger competition I saw compared to Gustad, some cast of characters that we'll see throughout this journey, Soderling, Mirny, Johansson on his way to Roddick in the final. Brian, did you know that the Canada Masters is the second oldest tournament, second only to Wimbledon? I did know that. Um, I will also go a step further. Uh, we talk about the strength of the fields because it's a Masters event, so it's a big deal. Um, the, the way they do it now, they split it where the men go to one city, the women go to another, Montreal and Toronto, and they flip those based on each year. But when the men or the women, the Montreal tournament, the addition of, of this tournament, they play it at the former home of the Montreal Expos to any baseball fans who are listening out there. Not Olympic Stadium where they had the Olympics, but it was a place called Jerry Park. And if you look at an overhead shot of that stadium, you can see one section of seating where the press box is and everything. It's shaped like a baseball diamond, like you're sitting behind home plate. And that's the area right behind one of the baselines. It's a great tournament. Sadly, this year, the Toronto portion of it, or the, excuse me, the Montreal portion's already been canceled. Uh, Toronto, we'll see what happens. Um, the men were in Montreal last year, so the men are in Toronto this year here in 2020. But yeah, it's a great tournament. I did know that it uh, it is... Very old and very historic. Yeah, it goes back all the way to 1881. Uh, a little trivia for you, Brian. Do you know who has won it the most on the men's side without looking? Is it? I mean, I broadcast, I, I broadcast it last year, so I, some of the fun facts are still in my mind. Was it Lendl? It was. Von Lendl. So Max Mirny gave him a hard time in Canada. Well, at least made him sweat a little. But for his career, Max was 2-8. and eight against Roger. I did a lot of these comparisons for this week in particular because we're starting to see a lot of these names come through more and more. Uh, he had considerable success, Max, that is, in doubles, though. He was ranked number one at one point and won several Grand Slams. Brian, how's doubles money? Uh, it's, it's not a bad way to make a living, but you're not going to be as wealthy as you would be playing singles. If you're at the top part of the doubles game like Max Mirny was... Um, you're going to do pretty well, but it's harder to be in the middle class of doubles players than it is to be in the middle class of the singles players. You'll make a wage, but remember with tennis, we talk about this a lot. You see those gaudy prize money figures at the bottom of a draw. You'll see our prize money's, oh, this guy's won $500,000 this year. This is great. But these players have to pay for their own travel. They've got to pay for a coach. There's no weekly salary. So it's you eat what you kill. And that money goes away pretty quickly. So as we sit here recording this and everything's on hold right now, these guys aren't having any income, real income, on their way in. So it's a, it's a tough time for everybody. So doubles money is, is good, but it's not as much as the singles. But it has been on the rise lately. Great point about the eat what you kill. Uh, you also didn't mention taxes, too. As soon as, depending on where you live, uh, I think a lot of why a few of the players live in uh, tax havens like Monte Carlo for obvious reasons, right? Wow. And I, Switzerland, I would imagine, too. Um, the depending on where you live does a lot of work in that statement because if you look at where a lot of players live, you will see that, wow, that's interesting. What, what's the connection there? And it's 
usually tax-related, Switzerland, Monte Carlo. Florida, there's no state income tax, of course. Same with Texas. Um, A lot of the Australian guys will actually live in uh, the Bahamas, uh, some of the islands. And that's, I mean, that's, there's tax advantage, but it's also, it's tough to be based in Australia. And then when most of the, okay, it's great for the month, six weeks that you can be, uh, that the tour is in Australia, but the rest of the year, that's a long flight. So it it makes sense for them. Leighton Hewitt is is an example of this, to have a a base a little bit closer to where most of the work's going to be done. Why is a pro better at doubles than at singles? What is the ingredient of a good doubles player that would not show up necessarily on a singles court? Um, It depends on the player. A lot of it is the hands, the reflexes. Um, Yeah, if you're you're playing singles, you've got to have good hands and reflexes. But maybe you're coming up the pipeline and anybody who's playing doubles at a high level was a very good singles player at some point. And then they essentially made a business decision that, you know what, I could grind it out in singles, but maybe if I focused fully in doubles, it's going to make more sense for me. It's going to pay off finance. I mean, Bob and Mike, Brian, they had nice singles career, um, you know, won an NCAA singles championship. I forget if it was Bob or Mike, and I should know that off the top of my head. One of them won the NCAA singles championship. Um, but then they realized, hey, we're, we're really good at playing together. It's unique to them, of course, being twins. Um, you make a business decision based on your especially limitations. Your, yeah, especially in their case. I use Jamie Murray, Andy's brother, as an example where he's older than Andy. So he was playing tennis at a high level, but his development was a bit different than Andy. He wasn't quite the prodigy that Andy was, but he was an excellent prospect. Uh, his forehand is not his best, is not that strong, is not as good as you would see on the ATP tour. So he's realizing, okay, he's able, you can hide more of your weaknesses on the doubles court. And I say weakness as a relative term, because it's still better than 99% of the population, but it's not going to be as successful on the ATP tour, on the main tour. So if you can cover it up a bit in the doubles court and find a partner that complements you well, uh, you, you can be successful. Next on the road to the U.S. Open, Roger lost the first round of the Cincinnati Masters, which is a big deal tournament. I learned that from you, to Dominic Rabati. Uh, Cincinnati Masters is the oldest tennis tournament in the U.S. Um, this is a history class over here. Yeah. Um, do you know who's won that one the most? I feel like, it, is it like a Bill Tilden, somebody really old? It is our man. In the myth, in the legend, Roger Federer. Okay. Yeah. Quick sidebar on Urbati. Uh, he reached 12 in the world at his peak, and he ended up being a quarter finalist at the Australian Open, a semifinalist at Roland Garros, and a quarter finalist at the U.S. Open. He played Roger three times and won two out of the three, which Brian puts him on a very short list of people that have a winning record against Roger, for whatever that's worth. It is. It's also interesting, though, when you look at, okay, this is a big win in 2004, but he's in that class of guy who is a few years older than Federer. So it's when Federer was still kind of, you know, the rough edges were being sanded off, basically. He's still on the rise, but it was that, we talked about it before, that almost frustrating rise where it's, okay, when is this big 
breakthrough going to happen. He's able to get him there a couple of times, but it is worth noting the only time they played when Federer was in the top 10, that was the Herbati, that was a Herbati win this time here in 2004 when Federer's won in the world. Next up, we got the Summer Olympics in Athens. Roger beats Davidenko in the first round, but lost to Tomas Burdich in the second. Observation. Uh, found some, like, cryptic video of this match with the Burdich. has got long hair, by the way, like, not what we're used yeah. to seeing recently. Um, the Olympic crowd was negligible compared to what you'd expect. They did not turn out for that. Well, I think that was maybe ominous for those Olympics because you've seen the pick. I mean what the financial uh, repercussions those yeah. Olympics had on, on the Greek country. Economy. Uh, yeah. yeah, the economy, the country, and you see those venues. So it's also tough with, with something like that. Um, I don't know the exact layout of the Olympic Park, but who knows where the tennis was. Um, it could have been out in the hinterlands of the Olympic Park. People aren't going to seek that out. And I always, I've never been to the Olympics, but I've always thought, too, if I were to go to the Olympics as a fan, I'm not sure I'd go watch the. It's I, I. You see enough tennis week in week out. It's like I'd want to go see something that I'm not going to see. Like I'd want to go watch archery or something like that. You know, it's like I, there's tennis is great. We love tennis. It's great in the Olympics, but I would kind of want to go see it somewhere or see something that I'm not going to really get in my usual sports consumption diet. That's my thought, at least. Something you only see once every four years, in other words. Exactly. Fair enough. So Burdich wins this match pretty handily. He wins it on Federer's serve. Uh, and uh, his facial expression was, he, he seemed surprised when he won. It was really funny. And my tale of the tape, if you will, was just there was too many rallies. For some reason, Federer wasn't putting him away like he, you usually see him do, you know, uh, paint by numbers on the court. He was just kind of, it was almost felt like hitting practice. And then Burdich got lucky on a couple of Federer mistakes. Quick sidebar on Burdich. He reached number four in the world in 2015. Um, and uh, thanks to you, got me curious about prize money. He is ninth all time in prize money, um, which again, I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around these. There's, there's a top three or four, and then it falls precipitously down. There's a very much a haves and a have nots in the tennis world, but that he's in the top 10 was kind of interesting to me. Um, and his lifetime record against Federer is six and 20. I was surprised in looking at his repertoire to find that he dominated Kevin Anderson, who's a great player that I've enjoyed watching recently for their career. He's 12 and 0, which I think is what was worth mentioning. The farthest he ever made it in a Grand Slam, Burdich, that is, uh, was a Wimbledon final in 2010, which I think we should talk about when we get there. He beat Roger in four sets in the semis, but ultimately lost to Rafa in the final. That he came between us and a Roger-Rafa final certainly can't help his legacy any. Well, it's interesting with Burdick because that was, I remember that final because that was, at the time, it was Nadal's best year, 2010. That's when he completed the Grand Slam and won the U.S. Open. Uh, he's had years since that have maybe topped it, but... He's one of those players that we've talked about before in that Nalbandian group of if he played in another era, he probably would have won a couple of Grand Slam titles. He won the one Masters. He made himself a whole lot of money, but he's a guy who's always in the top, you know, he's a top 10 player. He looks like he's got the body of Ivan Drago. Like he looks like somebody you drew up in a lab. But with Burdick at times on court, you'd see him get a little bit tight at those big moments and just that little buckle 
and he's unable to just punch through against those big names. Now, he had the wins against those big names. He's beaten all four of the big Mm. four if you throw Murray into that group uh, in majors. It's interesting you bring up that Kevin Anderson stat because they're the same age, and Kevin Anderson's been having some physical problems the last couple of years, but Burdick just retired last year. Anderson's the perfect example of a late bloomer. He went to college. Burdick did not. Um, So... In terms of physical gifts, yeah, Kevin Anderson's really tall. He's got a great serve. But all around, Burdick is probably a little bit more gifted than Anderson is. So I'm not, 12-0 and 0 is surprising, but I'm not surprised that he had the upper hand in the head-to-head. Okay. Anderson went to college in the States, right? He, Illinois. He, Illinois, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember that being a big storyline when he, he, had, he got pretty far. And he, he was a finalist. Finalist at Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. Yeah. Okay. U.S. Open. Let's run through this uh, round one. Albert Costa in straight sets. Costa eventually reached a tour ranking of six and won a French Open in 2002. This is rare, Vic, where you see Federer get a really tough first round opponent. And so just the way the seeding works here, Costa is what you would call a floater um, because they seed one through 32. And then outside of 32, everybody else gets thrown in the pot. So more often than not, statistically, if you're the one seed, you know, you'll get the world number 90. You'll get a, you know, some kind of wild card in the first round. But you get constant, who I think it was 44 at the time. That's a really tough first round opponent. It's somebody who's a few years older than Federer. We've talked about that issue with those players who have a little bit more maturity, a little bit more seasoning than him. So it, you don't see that too often where you get this kind of tricky first round opponent if you're Federer. I mean, you do see a pop up from time time to time, but Federer has usually been fortunate because he's been at the top of the rankings for so long that he'll draw the more favorable first-round opponent. This was a tough one. You would have actually expected to see the second-round matchup maybe be the first one. Marcos Bagdadis was a qualifier, right? Instead, we get a second-round match. Um, This puts Marcos on the map. I want to get your thoughts on him when I run through this. It was a four-setter, and it was Marcos' first Grand Slam event. Uh, he did not play like it was. It was you know, pretty impressive that he took a set away from uh, the number one player. He's the only other player besides Agassi that tournament that got a set off of Roger. They play again in the round of 16 of the Australian Open in 2005, where Marcos goes through Lubacic and Robredo to get there, both top 20-ish players. So this guy was formidable. I don't know. I tried to find some stuff on my handy uh, newspapers.com subscription about whether or not what Roger knew about Baghdadis coming in. There wasn't really a whole lot of stuff there. But the match was interesting. And I went back and I watched it. Roger takes the first set, 6-2, no problem. There's a great sequence there, though. It's 2-2 in the second set. And Baghdadis hits a drop shot that gets Federer thinking. It was reminiscent of when uh, Nadal got Federer thinking in Miami. The last episode we talked about. So the sequence is that drop shot, and then next on a Fed serve, Marcos keeps returning it. Every shot that Federer's hitting should be a winner or should be like a non-returnable hit, but he keeps the rally going. He's trying new things on the fly, which is fascinating. Again, the confidence and the swagger of like a younger guy with nothing to lose. Another drop shot, Fed hits a lob to save it. Baghdadis chases it and lobs one back, and then Federer volleys a winner which would be a winner under ordinary circumstances, but Baghdadis smashes a running forehand, cross-court winner. Federer does his signature look down at the ground before turning around to walk back up to the baseline. The crowd goes wild. 
he's officially a U.S. Open favorite, and all he had to do was hit one shot. Yeah, and that's kind of who Marcus Bagdadis was. And what's interesting about this match is, okay, Alcosta's a, a tough first-round opponent, but in a lot of ways, yeah, he's he's a good player. Federer was better than him, and Federer knew his game. Federer doesn't know Bagdadis' game. He's probably, he certainly heard of him. He was a junior number one by the time they had played this match. But he's not familiar with it. And that familiarity thing is so huge. We've talked about that before. A few years later at the U.S. Open, I was there when John Isner, his first year on tour, he played Federer. He wins a set off Federer. And it's, okay, Isner takes that first set, but you never really felt like, okay, he's going to win this match. It's Federer's going to make some adjustments, figure things out. And yeah, he got through in four sets. It's that same thing here with Bagdadis. Bagdadis' style, of course, endears him to a lot of people. The other... Baghdadis, I don't know if you call it a footnote, but we'll talk about this uh, in future shows. He was the on the other side of you know that last great Andre Agassi moment at the U.S. Open in 2006, that late-night win where they're both cramping, Agassi can barely move, and Andre gets the win. That was his last win at the U.S. Open, last win of his uh, professional career. Um, so that's maybe how Baghdadis is remembered at the U.S. Open. It's been a shame for Baghdadis with the injuries um, because he never caught a break. But he's one of those guys who was out there grinding. Um, I was in Australia last year, 2019, and before the tournament started, watching qualifying. And anytime he, qualifying at, at a at a major tennis tournament is fascinating because you'll see a young player coming up. You'll see guys that you or women that you've heard of but they're maybe down on their luck. And Bagdadis was one of those guys. And I'm watching this court. Place is packed with Marcus Bagdadis fans. Um, and he's trying to qualify for the Australian Open. He doesn't really need to be out here doing this, but he's doing it. He doesn't want to give it up. Uh, he eventually did retire last year, later in the year. Um, but he's a guy who's fascinating. He's colorful. Uh, he's from Cyprus, so that's an interesting, uh, you know, too, too many professional athletes from Cyprus, so you get a pretty passionate fan base around him wherever he goes, and it's one of those unique things, yeah. I was at that, uh, the cramping Agassi match, and it was, oh, I'll, wow. I'll never forget it. You were it in, this, in the stadium. I was, in, I was wow. at the stadium, yeah, with my friend Ryan. Shout out to Ryan Callahan if he's listening. So the second set goes to a tiebreak, and Marcos wins it. Don't call it a comeback, right? This could actually be a match. Um, but then, like, I don't know if we could say it so often, but, like, I've seen more times than a few. To your point, Roger gives some certain opponents a window. And I think what he's doing is he's saying, give me your best. Let me see what you have, and then I'm going to figure this out in the third set, fourth set, so on. And I think that's what this was here. He kind of... He, uh, Baghdadis was sort of taking the crowd out of it a little bit for Roger in the second set. And so he just kind of like stood back and said, let me see what his kitchen sink, if you will, to extend the analogy from last week, what his kitchen sink looks like. And he gave it to him. And then Roger comes back in the third set uh, and he hits relentless winners on every spot of the court, 6-3. Fourth set, he decides to bring in a new part of his game or show Baghdadis a new part of his game, the net game, his net game repertoire. And it's a 6-1 game set match. The cool thing about this, though, and it sort of sets our relationship with Baghdad as just a tennis fan going forward, he just looked happy to be there. It was a pretty cool thing to see. And again, like I mentioned, he and Agassi would be the only two guys to take a set from Roger in that tournament, which is something that you can hang your hat on, being your third 
pro match on the tour. Not bad. Exactly. And it's, but that, that can also be tricky too, because, okay, you're playing on Arthur Ashe Stadium against the world number one, crowds going nuts. There's 20,000 people. You take a set off of them. And then the next week, you're there two weeks later, next time you're on the court, you're somewhere in Asia playing on this side court and you're going up against a guy you don't you've never really heard of, but you have to bring your game. You have to win that match. Yeah. That that can be really tricky, uh, just to find that balance and that kind of that professionalism. And it's something that I, I hit a lot with you, Vic, um, how tennis is the ultimate sport of failure because everybody loses every week except for the person who's the eventual champion. There's it's a sport, a game of, of failure. And just to be able to cope and adjust to that takes something. It takes a special kind of maturity and sensibility to be able to handle it. You talked about the big four, big four. The ones that are in that conversation always are the ones that let the point right before go. And they focus on the point that they're in right now. And there's only a handful of guys that can get out of their own way. Um, and these are the guys that we're talking about. Quick sidebar on Baghdadis. We're going to talk about him more down the road here, but he finished his career 1-7 against Federer, 1-9 uh, against Nadal. He reached a peak rank of 8, which, again, quite an enormous feat from being a qualifier from Cyprus in the 2004 U.S. Open. Overall, he's one of those players that make you wonder what they could have done had they not been plagued by injuries. He was a runner-up at the Australian Open and reached as high as the semis at Wimbledon. So, yeah, not going to make our... Hall of Fame cutoff, but certainly was an entertainer at a very, very minimum. Exactly. And we'll be able to talk about him more when we talk about the 2006 Australian Open. Yes. Uh, rounds three and four of the U.S. Open were kind of snoozers. Fabrice Santoro, three sets. Andre Pavel, I think, believe that was a walkover. Federer didn't yeah. even have to play that. So bonus points for him. My name of the week as we talk about going through these draws because what you just said there now I get your point looking at the scoreline but you never watch a Fabrice Santoro match and, and use the word snoozer in the same sentence because Fabrice Santoro is one of the great entertainers of tennis over the last two decades three decades so the magician is his nickname and that should kind of tell you everything you need to know about him he can play he played two hand off the forehand and the backhand that's very rare to see somebody playing two hand forehand he could hit any shot from anywhere on the court. He had tremendous movement. Um, I'll never forget a 2000, I think it was seven match at the U.S. Open. He played James Blake, came back from, I think it was two sets down uh, to take Blake to a fifth late night. Crowd's going nuts. They want Blake to win, but Santoro's putting on an absolute show. Blake does come through. I think it was the first time he'd ever won a five-set match. Um and that was Santoro in a nutshell. He would always wear some colorful clothes. He's, if you want to fall down a fun rabbit hole, watch uh, Fabrice Santoro videos on YouTube for a while. I'm going to take you up on that, and we're going to talk about him next week in ad nauseum. No majors, right? Never won a major, but he was a guy who was around forever. And like in a good, like, if you look at the, the longevity records, it's Federer, uh, in terms of majors played, I think it's Federer, Feliciano Lopez, or even... And then there's a there's a big drop off, but it's Santoro's in third behind those two. His uh, he did a cool thing. He retired, I think, 2007 or 2008. But in 2010, he came back to play the Australian Open, so he could play a major in four different decades: 80s, 90s, aughts, and teens. 
Um, so it's it's that kind of thing. He's gotten some coaching. He had a lot of doubles wins. Uh, won the Australian Open a couple of times in doubles, but never got uh, never got as far at a major. But he was somebody who was able to do it and do it at a high level for a long period of time. I'm looking at him right now. He does TV for uh, French Open coverage now. Yeah, he coached Milos Raonich for a bit. He's he wears a lot of hats. Oh wow, he coached Raonic. Interesting. Yeah. Before uh, before McEnroe. I think it might have actually been after because McEnroe was was not long with Raonic. I think it might have actually been after. Raonic went through coaches at a pretty quick clip for a while, and I think Santoro was part of that window. Quarterfinal was an epic one, a five setter with the great Andre Agassi. Andre was then a twice champion at this point, ninety four and ninety nine. Uh, in this tournament, he came in ranked eight. They went back and forth exchanging sets, which is the ultimate fan gift, right? It's like a, it's a boxing match to split decision at the end, uh, which is nice to see. And this one was another one that we talked about a little bit last time. Uh, we talked about weather. Weather was a little bit of a factor here as well. Um, rain delay actually forced the match into a second day. Um, and Federer was up two to one starting the second day. And he attributed his poor performance to bad conditions. Andre played better in the wind overall. Any reactionary thoughts to that? Like why Andre would be more suited for bad weather? Well, when you watch this match, it really is like two, it's two matches. Um, because when they came back on the, the final, I forget if it was a Wednesday, Thursday, or a Thursday, Friday, when they came back the second day to finish it, the wind was in the 30s. Um, and the way the wind is at the U.S. Open and this is 2004 before they had built the roof because it's a little bit different now. Stadium is so big. It's the largest tennis state, permanent tennis stadium in the world. And the upper deck, you've been in there, Vic. We can sort of see in the picture in your background. Um, that was my actual seat. I'm yeah. sitting in one of my actual seats. So the upper level at Ash Stadium, it's a bowl. So once the wind gets in it, it only gets smaller going down closer to the court, the area. So the wind starts swirling. So even if you're at the top of the stadium and the breeze is blowing one way, it's not blowing that way down on the court. It's swirling, which makes the conditions almost impossible. And it's all about, because tennis is such a a sport of timing, you've got to try to hit through the wind. So you're not able to, I mean, nobody can really do that consistently. And you're not able to play attacking tennis. You have to just try to minimize the mistakes, play it safe, and hope the person on the other side of the net's going to make more mistakes. They both really struggle with that. The wind really affects the ball toss on the serve. Um, because if you watch a ball toss, there's a lot of science to it. And you want that toss, you want to be hitting the ball in pretty much the same spot, depending on which serve you're trying to play. Uh, but the the toss going up is going the wind's going to ha- have an effect on that. So it it just makes everything a whole lot harder. It's different now since they built the roof. It has really cut down on the amount of wind swirling because even when the roof's open, you've got this giant sort of superstructure that knocks down the wind. Observation on serve. You mentioned serve. Agassi served really fast. Uh, when you contrast that with how long it takes Djokovic to set up his serves. Agassi was just firing them. He didn't, I saw strategy there. Like he wasn't trying to give Federer a chance to sort of gather himself, if that's the right word. But that was an observation that I saw. Talk serving etiquette for a minute. Too fast versus too slow. What is the law or the unwritten law, if you will? 
Well, the law is written, and it's only gets, but it, it, it's pretty blurry, and especially depending on who's on the court, and that's going to like affect, Djokovic. Well, more Nadal than Djokovic. He's usually the number one. I mean, Djokovic takes a while, but Nadal um, takes also his sweet time serving. So the rule is you have to play at the server's pace. Um, so if the server's ready to go, the returner has to be ready to play the point. Now, some guys will complain that the server's going too fast. Uh, Nick Kyrgios goes very fast. Federer goes pretty quick. Agassi goes quick. Um, the last couple of years on tour, they've instituted a serve clock, a shot clock, basically. So what it is is once the umpire calls the score, the clock starts. 25 seconds, you've got to play the serve. Now, sometimes you'll see the serve... You'll see the guy hitting the serve, and the clock has hit zero. They won't call it. It's not going to be called every time. First time, it's a warning, and then you start losing serves. Um, last year, the U.S. Open final, 2019, I, I, I did the, the radio broadcast. and So you've got Nadal, who works. He hates the serve clock. He does not like being rushed. He likes his time on the court. And Daniil Medvedev works very quickly. So Medvedev is getting mad that Nadal's taking so long. Medvedev is also saying, I'm ready to serve, playing at the server's pace. Nadal's not ready. This isn't fair to me. So that was an ongoing thing throughout that final. You'll also see Nadal get angry if he's called for it. Now, I I do agree with him that there maybe should be some discretion by the umpire. Whereas if you've got a a 30-shot rally and, you know, the guys finish, the women finish the point, they're doubled over, gasping for air— it is tough to all of a sudden hit that clock and the 25 seconds are starting. And you will see umpires try to take a pause, then say the score, just to buy them a few more seconds and a little bit more leniency. But the rule is you've got to play at the server's pace. Um, so Federer and Agassi here, and this is really before the the true arrival of Nadal. It was before Djokovic had really made his splash and he worked you know, a little bit slower as well with his rituals. Um, so this is the way... Tennis has traditionally been played in terms of the serves, but you have seen it take longer uh, the last couple of years. Federer's pace is right up my alley. He yeah. just gets it done. And his you're talking about the motion and how deliberate and intentional the the ball toss is. He, it's it's they called him a conductor. They've called him a, they've given him all the superlatives, but when he's serving, he really truly does look like a magician. It is a very and watching these early matches now and you compare it to the stuff he's doing in 2018, 19, and 20, he has isolated the precision and the perfection of his serve. It looks the same then as it does now, which is really hard to do. Makes it look easy, but it actually is super hard to do, especially with our body ergonomics changing and whatnot. Exactly. And that's, you know, other players like Maria Sharapova is an example. We talked about her when we talked about 2004 Wimbledon, where she was such a, a bigger server. And then once she had her shoulder issues, it's not, you know, the, the Sharapova over the second half of her career, it's not the same serve that she won Wimbledon, won the U.S. Open with, and get credit to her for adjusting, but it, it blunts the power of what was a, a huge weapon. So a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of fortune for Federer just to be able to stay healthy and hit those same serves. But yeah, it is something that has evolved. Nadal's uh, talked about changing his serve the last couple of years. He made some adjustments to try to put a little more pop onto it. Uh, but yeah, Federer has been pretty much the same all the way through. You mentioned Sharapova, like the ability to generate power begets confidence. And if you lose power, you lose confidence. And that's some of what you see there. Like if you're not able to rely on that powerful serve, then it it just takes, we, we talked about this with Roddick too, right? Like 
that's why was Federer able to respond to Roddick was because Roddick was like, how did you just return that serve? Right. I don't know what to do. Yeah. So speaking of serves, Federer has seven aces in the first set against Agassi. Then later he's up 5-2 on Agassi's serve. And Federer hits a backhand drop shot, barely grazes the net. And Agassi doesn't even make a run for it. This is the first set, by the way. Like, talk about feeling defeated. You usually run for things in the first set, or maybe he's conserving energy, but he's seemingly an ocean away. And then McEnroe, right then, without skipping a beat, says, this guy could be the greatest player that ever lived. This is before even winning his fourth Grand Slam, which I don't know if that's premature or not, but these are the kinds of things that were being said about Roger when the ghost of... Pete Sampras really hadn't even fully formed yet. He was still around, potentially. That point gave him set point. In the second set, Agassi breaks Fed's service game and goes up 3-0 early. Gets three set points on Federer's serve. uh, Set two for Agassi, which is always a signifier to me. Change those shirts, right? We get to watch the changing of the shirts tradition. Uh, We got a match, the U.S. Open. I noticed a couple of things watching the replay. The upper rows were kind of empty that night, which was sort of strikingly odd for me that it was a U.S. Open, that it was a quarterfinal, and Agassi was in it. But I did see Kevin Garnett in attendance. You know how much I love basketball. KG and his love of tennis. uh, He's been attending these games since I can remember. Any comment or anecdote about Kevin Garnett or basketball players in particular? Uh, actually, this is a sad one, but I remember last year, uh, Kobe Bryant was at the U.S. Open, and I was amazed. I think he actually came out. So before the match, there was the coin toss, and you, you take the picture. And um, he did the coin toss, and it was for a Federer match. And there's a picture of the two of them on court. Um, and I was amazed with Kobe. He was doing a lot of interviews, promoting his uh, children's book he had written. I was amazed because when you see these celebrities at the U.S. Open and all these tournaments, they usually come in, they sit courtside, they get their face on the big screen, you know, they're photographed, and you go to the... He was there, it felt like, for two days, and he was all over the place. He's watching, you know, Coco Goff was playing on Armstrong, so he was out there yeah. watching Coco Goff. Uh, he was doing all the different... I know he was on the US, the, the internal U.S. Open digital show. He was on with ESPN, on with Tennis Channel. He was everywhere. And um, I, I, that was one of the first, I thought about that the day that, that Kobe died. Um, just so, he was so full of life. And that's one of the great tragedies of, of what happened. Um, so yeah, he comes to mind quickly. Is there a Jack Nicholson or a Spike Lee of tennis match attendees that come to mind for you? Anna Wintour. Um, she is friends with Federer. Uh, he's into his fashion. She's usually in his box courtside at the U.S. Open. We've seen her around the world um, as well. She's in there. He's got some famous friends. Hugh Jackman, you'll see him pop in from time to time. Uh, there was a time when Gwen Stefani and... Um, who's the guy from... Gavin. Uh, from Bush. Gavin yeah, Gavin Rosdale. Rosdale. They were very tight with the Federers. I'm not sure how that friendship has uh, evolved since they're no longer a couple. But they were yeah. in the box court. I think for that Nadal, that the 2008, that epic Wimbledon final, Yeah, uh, they were courtside with, with Mirka Federer. Uh, they're in there a lot. Jordan was in the Federer box a couple of years ago. Um, Tiger I, too, right? Tiger was, yeah, Tiger's been there a couple of times. Of course, all the Nike tie-ins. When Federer oh, gotcha. was with Nike. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of that was Nike. But when Jordan was there, Federer actually wore Jordans, which was really cool. 
Uh, I remember this is probably those. 2014. He had the Jordan. I forget which model of Jordans, uh, but he hit a really good tweener that night, and it was you know right in front of Jordan. It was really cool. But yeah, Anna Wintour, I would say, is the hands down jack of tennis. She's the jack of tennis. Um, all the greats were in attendance this match too, which is a regular going forward, as we'll see for Federer matches. They all come out of the woodwork. A V-Lander was there, and uh, just on and on starts to become a storyline. I also, Vic, I wanted to talk about the, you know, you mentioned the empty seats. I don't know, I wish I did, but it's hard to track down the schedule of play because if this was Wednesday, it, would have, it was a quarterfinal. If it started Wednesday, they would have had, this probably would have been the second match on. So what happens is after the first match, you know, you've been to the U.S. Open, they clear, the players leave the court, usually from a women's match that went before. And everybody goes out and gets food, gets something to drink, goes walks around. So I'm guessing that's why it looks a little bit empty early. Um, there was also bad weather that night. We know it; they didn't were unable to complete the match that night. So maybe some people just thought, ah, you know what? I'm not going to make the trip out to the Open tonight just because of the rain. Uh, so that has something to do with it as well. But I, I would guess it had something to do with the the scheduling and just people going to get some refreshment. Later in the match, Fed's first service game of a set that he goes up 2-1. He has, or Agassi has an advantage. Fed aces his way out of that, saves the break point, and then another one. And then he eventually wins with a non-returnable serve, yells a come on. That's his first come on of this match. There's be a little chime that goes off every time you get a Federer come on and then correlate that with whether he wins or loses. And then he stares. The interesting thing that I saw there was he stared at Agassi for a long time uh, we talked about the Ollie listen thing. It wasn't quite that, but it was sort of a, like, it was an intimidating stare. And part of me still feels like Federer has the deference and a respect for Agassi because he is the eight-time champion, Grand Slam champion at this point, and Federer is still sort of a young buck. So it was kind of an interesting TV bit of drama, if you will, that we got. The crowd also, it's worth noting, is pro-Agassi, but loving it. They noticed the stare. And uh, there was a tone that changes, which is a New York crowd that we both love so much. Later, up 5-4 on Federer's serve. Agassi gets it to deuce, but Federer wins with his 11th ace. And then at 5-5, Federer breaks Agassi off a shot that can't get over the net. Was it the wind, right? We'll never know. And then finally, Federer wins the third set 7-5, gives us his second come on. Fourth set is when the rain delay starts. And it goes into the next day. Up 4-3 in the fourth set on Federer's serve. Six deuces. Something that I caught on Tennis Abstract, so I had to go back and watch that. What happened? Uh, There were four breakpoint chances there. And Agassi finally gets it off a lucky bounce on the net. And then Agassi serves it out for a fifth set. I've asked you this before. Is it anybody's match if it goes to a fifth set? In this particular match, it could very well have been. They were both playing as good as they could. And there was a, the commentators were saying that Agassi was actually playing better. How did Federer get this done? Well, I felt Federer had a very prescient uh, analysis after the match. The level was so high in the night three sets, the first three sets when before the wins started. But when you come back in those kinds of wins, you can't play your best tennis. So then it becomes a war of attrition and just who's going to be able, this is not going to be pretty, but just somebody get this over the line. Who's going to do that? So you look at that fifth set, 
Agassi misses two forehands long at 4-3. Then Federer serves it out, wins the match. Federer, after the match, says he made one mistake and lost the match. I made one mistake. I lost the set. And that's what happened. That's how Federer lost the fourth set. But then Agassi makes his mistakes at the worst possible times. And that's what doomed him. So it's, it's just about that just finding a way. And if you watch... Uh, how this match ended, Federer roared when he won this match. And you're thinking, okay, this is a, yeah, it's a big win. You beat Andre Agassi, but it's still the quarterfinals. But knowing it's Agassi on the other side of the net, what he had to go through, the the high level the first night, waiting out the wind, waiting out the rain, rather, coming back in the wind, conditions aren't great, he loses that set. But to to gut it out, the lift you get from that, I think in a lot of ways, gives you more than, okay, I went out and played absolutely flawless tennis. You get this, just that sense of accomplishment from getting yourself through something like this. Yeah, his scream was epic, and he he, he like pulls his shirt up too. Yeah. Some of his earlier match celebrations are are more aggressive and like, you know, visceral than his finals victories. It's interesting to see that sometimes. This was definitely one of those. Uh, McEnroe called this a benchmark win for Federer. Goes on to the semifinal to beat Tim Henman in three sets. Henman, interestingly, had a 6-2 and two record against Federer coming into this U.S. Open. But as you've mentioned before, uh, Henman had a little bit of uh, age advantage on him. And, and he was working through, uh, he played him when, uh, when Federer had the uh, highlight tips in his hair. Yeah. It was a different Federer. But something else with Henman in this match, you know, H- Henman, we talked about him, I think, l- last episode. Yeah. Or we've talked about him earlier. I asked you if he teed up the world for Andy Murray, basically. Oh, right. Yeah, we talked about that perspective of things. Now, Henman was a very, you know, he was a, he played at the net a lot. So he doesn't have the firepower that Federer does. And Federer, once he was able to get through those early jitters, was able to just sort of overpower Henman. Now, Henman was able to give him problems. We talked about that going into this. He was 6-2 and two against him all time. But Henman also coming into this had had a... Re- he would he had struggled with some injuries throughout the 2004 season. He had played to get to this semifinal three five-setters and two four-setters, where Federer had lost the one set to Bagdanis. He gets the walkover. Okay, he has a tough match spread over two days against Agassi, so you do have to recover from that. But Henman's road was much tougher to, to navigate than Federer's was to get to this point. I'm going to run down the final real quick with Hewitt. But on the top of it, I just want to get your reaction. How does this happen? How do you go 6-0 and then 7-6, meaning like come back? to a tie break and then 6-0. Can you just articulate the the rationale, if you will, from Hewitt's perspective? Federer I get, but where was Hewitt? What happened? Okay, well, I think the and it's very easy for me to sit here saying this when I'm not on the court in a major final of as course. A, a gift player, but how something like this could happen? Now, Hewitt had won the U.S. Open before. He had been a world number one. Hewitt, let's not, as bad of a beatdown as he caught in the final, he had a fantastic 2004 as well. He just had Exactly to, my point. He ran into Federer in every single major. That was his problem. Hewitt, going into this final, had not lost a set in the tournament. He had a very favorable draw. Didn't play anybody ranked higher than 30. But, okay, so you come out, and maybe one thing doesn't go your way 
And then all of a sudden you're down an early break. So, okay, you're, you're down two love early in the set. Then you get broken again and you're thinking, oh no, here we go. I've served twice. I have not held serve. Then Federer holds, it's four love. And you're thinking, okay, this set might be gone, but let's get myself together for the second set. Not that you're just going to let the set go, but you're already sort of looking ahead. So in that second set, he digs in his heels. He's able, he plays much better, gets it to a tie break. Anything can happen in a tie break. Doesn't happen for Hewitt. He had chances even earlier in that set to put it away, but couldn't do it. And then once you get to that tie break and lose, that's pretty deflating. And then the third set could very quickly go. Now, saying all that, that's maybe what Hewitt was thinking. But you might have had, you know, to pick anybody on the other side of the net that day. That's how good Federer was playing. That he might not have been able to do anything better. Federer was just playing otherworldly tennis. Would you expect something more than two bagel sets? Yes, but it just wasn't Hewitt's day and it happened in the worst possible time. I read an article that said the perfect place to get bagels is New York City. So what better place, which was, you know, neither here nor there. But I wondered how many times he had been blanked like that. Uh, I looked it up. He's lost 6-0 before. Um, but never twice in the same match and certainly not in a final. So if there was ever a time to have this be sort of like a really sore thumb, if you will, sticking out thumb, they couldn't have picked a, a worse match to do it in. One, one, one reason it really sticks out, Vic, is because Hewitt is one of the last players you would expect to lose like that because yeah. his game was based on hustle, getting to every ball, scrapping. So you're thinking, okay, he's going to find a way to just outwork, you know, just claw himself onto the scoreboard. And the fact that he was unable to do that not once but twice is shocking. The other thing to your point, no one is ever going to admit in sport that they're just going to let the set go. Or if you're down, if it's the fourth quarter and you're in a best of seven series in the playoffs and basketball and you're down 13 with a minute and a half to go, uh, yeah, the coaching is to hustle till the whistle blows. There is, there is a part of you that's like, you know what, we need to retool and we need to figure this out for next game. You're going to pull the starters off the floor, basically. You're going to pull yeah. the starters off the floor, exactly. And I've seen, and again, I'm the Federer apologist on this podcast, right? I have seen Federer do this. I have seen him get torched and just kind of not really go after the serve. There were a couple of aces that I've seen against him where he could have kind of gone for it or he could have he hit a return, but then it would have obviously been slammed back for a winner, but he just kind of like ran through the paces and it's like, okay, I'm going to lock and load for set two. So no one will admit it, but we as the observer, we see it. We right. see it all the time. And I, and I will chalk that up for uh, Hewitt in set one because set two, he came back with fire. But to your point, I think losing a tie break is more deflating than getting bageled. Fair statement? Um. It depends on how you lose the tiebreak. Um, but I think for Hewitt there, the, the chance that he had to win the set is really tough. Now, there was a point that I, I wanted to, to highlight because Hewitt, in the second set, he had a break point uh, to go up 5-3. They're hanging at the baseline, just rallying. Hewitt, all of a sudden, from a pretty defensive position, is able to get a lot more pace on a forehand. Federer has to actually back up to just hit like a recovery forehand. So he would play as an approach shot, 
Good, not great. Federer, again, just blocks it back. Again, just keeping that point alive, playing defense. Hewitt comes in. He tries to rip it cross-court off the backhand, hits the net cord, and then floats wide. So he goes from that break point to deuce. Federer, ace, service winner. He's up 5-3 instead of 4-4. I mean... If it's 4-4, Hewitt's then serving to go up 5-4. Who knows? But maybe he wins that set without even getting to a tiebreak. So many of those what-ifs that you try not to think about, but they're going to be on your mind if you don't win that set. Yeah. The second set, Hewitt was up 6-5. Like, so he had so many chances, right. and it just wasn't his night. Okay, let's we can say that. That's the easy thing to say. But the observation that I had when you compare this match, which is a final to the Agassi match, Federer was swinging, and the broadcast said this too, he was swinging like he already won. The first couple of games in set one, it was almost like it was over before it even started, and I don't know how to describe that. There's no, there are no words in the English language that I can put together to be as articulate as his playing was, but the only thing to say is, watch what he does in the first couple of games, and it was almost like the... It, like it was over. Like I've mentioned Kenny Smith in the slam dunk competition. <laughs> uh, the first dunk of the first round, it's over. Federer was able to exude that. The other thing that I noticed observation-wise, and I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but the game was so much slower compared to the Agassi match. It was like the ball was hanging there, waiting for Federer to hit it or to get to it or to get around it. And the opposite on the other side of the court for Hewitt. Wherever Federer put the ball, it was always sort of a journey for Hewitt to get to it. And that was the match in a nutshell. It was the slowing of it down. He wasn't hitting a tennis ball. He was hitting a basketball. And it was noticeable compared to the Agassi match. Any thoughts or reactions to that? You could just see how much more comfortable he looked. And of course, the play... Comfortable is the great word. Yeah, he's comfortable. And to be that comfortable in a major final is is eye-opening. And that's the part that really stops you because it's one thing to look like this in the third round at in Cincinnati, but to do it in the U.S. Open final against the fourth seed, Leighton Hewitt, um, who had been a former world number one, he's no slouch. To come out and just be that locked in and that in the zone, it's like in baseball, a pitcher who is just doing what, like he's painting the corners. That's what yeah. Federer is doing. He's able to just get whatever he wants at any time and it's just, you get into that rarefied air where nobody's going to beat you on that day. I think what's so mind-boggling about it, now that you've just said what you said, is that Hewitt and him are pretty much the same age. And Hewitt is a former number one, like a recent former number one. He's not a scrub, but this looked like a qualifier match. And that's, I think that's, that sort of was the breathtaking takeaway from this. Um, final set, up 5-0. Federer wins it on Hewitt's serve, which which is another audacious thing. Most players serve it out to win, right? When you win on your opponent's serve, that's just insult to injury as far as tennis is concerned. And he does it with a running forehand winner uh, on championship point, and he falls to his knees. This is one of his bigger sort of uh, celebrations from a Grand Slam perspective. I think it's his first hard court. No, not his first hard court. His first U.S. Open. His first U.S. Open. And... You hear players talk about the first time is always big. We saw it certainly at Wimbledon the year. I mean, Wimbledon was the big one, but to win the you win the U.S. Open. You're a kid growing up in Switzerland. You're watching, 
Yeah, Stefan Edberg, you're watching Pete Sampras, you're watching Andre Agassi, somebody you'd beaten two rounds earlier. But to to win the U.S. Open is a huge deal. To do it in the fashion he did it is even bigger. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those monumental days, and you could just see that what that meant to him and how that that kind of hit him all at once. A couple of quotables on the court. Hewitt said, "Too good, mate." You could hear it loud and clear. He's actually. Uh, I've noticed Hewitt was very gracious in defeat compared to a couple of other players that we can we can talk about as this sort of spreads out a little bit. Um, it's always great to watch the emergence of an all-time great. I think Chris Fowler said that. And then uh, knocking on the door of the greatest ever. Again, I want to get your thought on that when we contextualize this. Like, premature or are we really there? A couple of quick other matches I just want to put out there for completion purposes that are sort of part of Roger's story here. In the first round, Safin, who we've talked about a lot, lost in the first round to Thomas Enkvist in four sets. Second round, Nadal and Roddick had a match. Roddick wins it pretty convincingly, 6-0, 6-3, 6-4. Nadal versus Roddick, they would play each other 10 times uh, in Roddick's career. Roddick won three of those. In this U.S. Open match, which was their first meeting, they played again in the U.S. Open in 2011, and Rafa got his revenge there, coming off a year that you just said was one of his best ever. So it makes sense. A couple of more cast of characters from this story of ours. Second round, Yuzny beats Nalbandian in a five-setter. Third round, Burdick beats Yuzny in a five-setter. And then in the fourth round, Tommy Haas who's a player that I want to talk about. I'm not sure I want to talk about him here, but he's a guy that hangs around in these tournaments in the Federer story. He beats Burdick in straight sets. Do you have something on Tommy Haas now, or do you want to save him for another day? He's a fascinating guy. Um, when we talk about the, you know, the ball, Terry, the training in South Florida, Haas was a big part of these. One of the big guys coming out of there. Of course, Agassi, everybody looks at him first, but Haas is a, is a good buddy of Federer's and he beat yeah. him. I think in maybe one of the last matches of his career, Tommy Haas, uh, he beat Federer, I want to say in Hala, uh, on grass. Um, yeah, no, there's, a, and he's a tournament director now at Indian Wells. So there's a lot to talk about with Haas. But all the, a lot of those matches you talked about, the other one too, uh, Joachim Johansson beating Roddick, who's the defending champion, all of those served to really pave the way. We talk about Hewitt not losing a set going into the final and not playing a player ranked lower than 30. I think all of those wins benefited Hewitt because he didn't have to play an Albandian. He ah. didn't, and so things worked out for him. He did nothing wrong. You have to play the players in front of you. But he had a very favorable draw. And you almost wonder, did he go into that final undercooked? You know, Federer had to get through that war of attrition against Agassi. Tim Henman's always tough. Hewitt has an easier time not playing anybody ranked inside the top 30. Johansson in the semifinals. Very interesting fact there. Johansson was dating Hewitt's sister at the time. So these guys had practiced together. They knew each other quite well. He had a big, booming serve, um, yeah. having taken out Roddick, obviously, in the quarters. But no match for Hewitt on that day. So it was a very different path for Hewitt. And you wonder, was he undercooked? That's kind of why I mentioned at the end, because it's always like looking back, like, could the outcome have been any different? We talked about this last time as well. I don't think, I think Roger would have had all these guys, even Rafa, if Rafa had gotten through, I just feel like he wasn't there yet. 
Especially on a hard court. Yeah, this was not... He still needed a little more seasoning. Um, Roddick would have been interesting. Yeah, and Roddick and Hewitt were the two guys that you wanted to see in the final, right? Yeah, I think... Going into this tournament, if you're a if you're a tennis fan, you want to see Federer Agassi, which you got, and it lived up to the billing. And you would want to see Federer Roddick in the final. You didn't get it, um, but those are the matches you you would want to see. Okay, contextualize Roger now from your vantage point. He's four for four in Grand Slam finals, and all the superlatives that you just heard me recite that the people were saying about him on the TV. Uh, where are we at with Roger? Well, we're talking about him now in a very different light. And we talked, okay, the end of 2003. Look at, look at a year prior, basically. 2003, he wins Wimbledon. Uh, he has a chance to take over the number one ranking. Doesn't, doesn't win the U.S. Open. Okay, is he just a guy who's now in the mix as somebody who's going to be contending? Or is he going to be an all-time great? 2004, he comes out, wins the Australian Open. He has eight titles going into this U.S. Open, including two majors. Races through the U.S. Open. Dominant performance in the final. He's the world number one. He's beaten everybody. Now you're thinking, whoa, wait a second here. This guy has won three slams in a year, which only I think 10 people had done at that point. He's four for four in finals. He's 23 years old. Where, where are we going here? This, this is what, and you talk about John McEnroe saying he, he could be the greatest of all time just by playing that one shot. Um, you're starting to see the, the stake meet the sizzle. Um, you, you got some glimpses, Ooh, but like now where there is, everything's coming good. So this is the eye-opening year for Roger Federer and with good reason. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, when I heard that, I was just like, don't get me wrong. I remember watching all these matches in real time when they happened. And I was like, wow, this guy, I've never seen anything like this, just like everybody else, right? But looking back at it now, uh, and we know how far he's come with 20 Grand Slams, to say this at number four, uh, when you have a Pete Sampras out there with 14, when you have a Agassi out there with, is it eight? Does Agassi have eight or is it 10? I think it's eight. Yeah, I think it's eight too. Um, but anyway, there's these guys that are that are an order of magnitude greater, if you will, and it kind of makes me wonder, like, what was it, what was Sampras thinking when he heard John McEnroe say that in the Agassi match? He's probably thinking it's much ado about nothing now, but it's just an interesting thing that the level of his game was so visually and physically stunning that you could get these superlatives so early. You know, it's a yeah. testament. I mean, but it's it's also the numbers, like it's. Federer 2004 goes 74 and six. Um, he after this U.S. Open, he played two more tournaments in Bangkok and then the Masters Cup, the finals. Wins both of them, loses one set in each of them. He beats Hewitt in that Masters Cup final. Um, beat him twice in that tournament because of the round robin. Um, so it, that's just such a, an exclamation point to think that okay, he loses to Burdick at the Olympics and then does not lose the rest of the year. That's mid-August. Uh, he doesn't lose again the rest of the year. Okay, he only played a limited number of events after that. But to be as dominant as he was and to be 23 years old, you're thinking, okay, this is, we have a problem. You turned 23 in the middle of that stretch. We have a problem here if you're everybody else. Nice segue. Thank you. We're talking about numbers here. Your answers to these questions that I toss at you, you give me such thoughtful answers. I am digging a little bit deeper into my statistical preparation for this. Unrelated to this tournament question, how big is Jimmy Connor? Talking about records now, how big is Jimmy Connor's 109 titles record? 
Federer is currently at 103. Well, 109 is massive. I mean, just to win tournaments 109 times is incredible. But it is it is a different feel, or it's a different era of the sport. So I, I do think that um, is something to be considered. Uh, it's And that's all titles, right? It's all matches played as a professional? All pro, yeah. Like ATP level matches. Like not, you know, there was no challenger tour in Jimmy Connors days, but 109 uh, tournament wins. Um I think in a lot of ways, it, it's kind of similar to Margaret Court and Serena Williams on the women's side. I mean, you look at the major conversation, but Margaret Court was winning her majors in a, in a very different era than Serena Williams has won her majors. Everything is, I'm not trying to take anything away from any of these people, but uh, Jimmy Connors' 109 tournament wins were against fields that, that were a little bit different than who Federer has won his 103 against. Not saying it's less impressive, but... I, I think that that does come in for some of the weighting of it all. Do you think Federer is going to, is it, is it an important record for Federer? Um, I think he would like it. I think any, he'll take any record. I right. think it was probably. But is it one that, like, Grand Slams are circled on the calendar, so to speak. Right. Is this 109 circled on his calendar now, on his GOAT calendar, if you will? I don't think so. Um and I also think that the current state of the suspension of everything has changed. Yeah. Now, he, of course, was going to be out until the grass season anyway because of surgery. Right. So who knows? Maybe we've talked about he's had good fortune before. Maybe by some miracle, we are able to salvage the back half of the 2020 tennis season. And he maybe picks up a title or two somewhere uh, along the way. Um, no, for these guys and Djokovic, Nadal are in the same group, the the majors are circled on the calendar the masters are circled on the calendar and the olympics um i think an olympic singles gold medal would be a really big deal to federer because he's never won one um and that would be a a big diamond in the crown that i think he wants to lock down before he retires did we miss anything today brian uh one other note that i think is is worth just highlighting this is the tournament this u.s open where I think we hit the tipping point of bringing Hawkeye review into tennis because it was a women's quarterfinal. Uh, Serena Williams, Jennifer Capriati. It was a great match, but there was a brutal overrule by the chair umpire on a ball Serena hit called. I think Serena hit it. It was called good, but it missed. Or Capriati hit it. It was called out and was overruled to good. Either way, Serena got hosed on the call, lost the match, and that put everything into overdrive. Like, replay was going to, the challenge system was going to come into the sport. But if you look at one defining moment that put it over the top, it was this U.S. Open, their quarterfinal match. Mm. Yeah, I noticed seeing some reviews in the in the video clips that I watched, and I was wondering when that came in. I just naively thought it was it had already been in existence. So if you're seeing it in these clips from 2004, you would see it, like the broadcasters had the capability. So you were yeah. able to see in real time how bad that call was, but yeah. the players couldn't challenge. And that's going to be a fun thing uh, to talk about down the road because I, I perhaps the worst thing uh, in Roger Federer's game are his challenge skills. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's not good at it. And it, it's fun to think about and talk about. We'll have some fun with those. Um, do you want to preview us for next time? What's our next tournament? Well, we're going... Uh, we're skipping a few months. We're going to Wimbledon 2005. Uh, loses an Australian. Yeah, that was uh, Safin. Safin, right? Well, Safin manages to come back and win Australia. Basically, I think a good way to look at it is you have this historic year in 2004. 
you're the world number one. You win three majors. How do you how do you follow that up? Is there a letdown? Okay, you lose in the semifinals in Australia to Marat Safin in like an all-time classic fifth set. Um, but you still manage to have a year that any other player would probably trade a limb for. So it's the 2005 from Federer. Okay, it's not 2004, but it is a historic year. Sounds good. I look forward to it as always. Brian, this was a lot of fun. Uh, stay well, be well, and I'll uh, see you next week. Thanks, Vic. You too.